Do you ever feel like technology is just a bunch of digital noise? It's important to know what it's really about. This is Telecom Talk with host Pat Pittman. Pat brings over a half century of experience in the telecom industry and has seen firsthand many changes, regulations, and new technology. Now, she answers your questions. Here's your host, Pat Pittman. Doing Telecom Talk today. Uh, I think we're going to have a very interesting show that will bring a lot of information to people who are unaware of some of these situations. Luckily today, and I do mean luckily, we have a guest, Martha Beyer. Martha is not only a lawyer, she specializes in telecom and various areas around telecom. So she really knows what's going on out there and what's happening in uh, all the different areas that are touched by the law and that you need to be aware of. So say hello, Martha. Hi, Pat, and hi, everyone. It's very nice to have been invited. Thank you very much for including me. Oh, you're very welcome. Um, I know my listeners are really going to be interested in some of the things we're going to talk about it today because it definitely and directly affects them. Well, that's 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 what I that's what I hope that's the information I hope to provide. I'm happy to share. And as I mentioned to you before we were on the air, if someone has a question that I can't answer immediately, if they email the show, um, I will then get back get back to you with an answer. Perfect. Thank you. Um, I'm sure several of our listeners will take advantage of that. Well, let's get started. Um, I know there's been a lot of funding set aside for telehat telehealth, put my teeth back in, telehealth, uh, due, due to the COVID-19 funding. Um, what's up with that? Well, so this is a very interesting topic. When the CARES Act was first passed, $200 million um, was appropriated for the FCC to, to disperse sort of as it saw fit. Uh, and and at, at, as of today, um, just under $105 million has actually been awarded. Um, but two, two Democratic congressmen recently have raised the question about how the funds have been distributed that, of the $105 million, because there are a number of people who have applied for telehealth funding and have not received it yet. Um, so this is, uh, this is an ongoing issue. Um, do you, uh, with telehealth, um, telehealth funding, what exactly do they want to fund? I mean, or is, it, is that what they're asking about? Is it open well, to interpretation? Well, so it, it's, it's not, it, it, there's not a lot of interpretation, but the problem is um, in the past, that is historically, um, the, uh, physicians and other medical providers were not eligible for insurance reimbursement when uh, patient consultations were done by phone. Oh, um, really? And that oh, has, interesting. No, they weren't. Um, and that has changed. That has changed quite dramatically. But if you are a small local doctor's office and are looking for some sorts of funding, and I can't tell you specifically what equipment it qualifies, I, I, that, I, that I don't know off the top of my head. Um, but if you're looking for funding to support uh, patients in a, in a rural community, for example, um, there, are, there, are, there are pots of money set aside to do that. Um, but the question is how quickly the funds are being dispersed and to whom. And that's what... 
that's what these two congressmen are, are, are questioning. Um, interestingly, I saw something this morning about a program, and actually the headline of the story was great. The headline was, Colts Trotted Out to Navajo Nation. Well, Colts are satellite cell-on-light trucks. Um, okay. And what they do is provide um, they what they do is provide internet connectivity in in Navajo in within the Navajo Nation, um, and the Navajo Nation has been hit particularly hard with COVID, um, and so anything that can be done to try to manage the the, the crisis there has been a positive. Um, certainly, there are special pots of money that have been set aside not only through the FCC, but also through the Bureau of Indian Affairs. Um, to to help expedite uh, getting getting systems in place that can support medical um, consultation that that can be done remotely. So anyway, this is this is pretty interesting. Um, in in the state of North Carolina, and there may be other states where this has happened as well. I just happened to talk to a friend who's a physician who was telling me about it. Um, in in some of the more economically distressed areas of the state. Um, the state has secured a number of school buses that it has, mm-hmm. it has converted into Wi-Fi hotspots so that people who might not otherwise have connectivity um, can get it, possibly not, not, not forever, um, but these, these, uh, these mobile hotspots enable people to connect who have not been able to connect before. That's... Um, and that's viewed as a, as a very <clears throat> positive thing. So, so there are a number of changes. Um, the application process for telehealth funding, I can't, I can't address off the top of my head, but there is funding there mm-hmm. because the goal is to, to try to keep people healthy um, or keep them safe to the best, to the best of, of, of everyone's ability. And I think that there are a lot of people who remain concerned about going into a crowd, particularly in a, in a medical facility. Absolutely. It's interesting because uh, here in Arizona, we have two different uh, Indian reservations one up in the Navajo, which is in the northeast corner of the state, and then practically, you know, just a couple miles here from here, we have the Maricopa County Pima Indians. So, and some of that area that they have is very, very desolate. And I, I know connectivity has been a really big problem for them for a long time. Well, that's this. This ties this ties uh, certainly somewhat into the issue of network neutrality. Um, and providing broadband. I mean, everyone wants to provide broadband service. Businesses that 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 have the ability to do it always want to provide it down Main Street um, <laughs> yeah. in in large cities because because that's where the money is. And it doesn't necessarily, in and of itself, make financial sense to provide it in rural or poorer communities where they won't get their money back. Um, and and the answer to that issue tends to be a public-private partnership because if if strictly, um, if what you're looking at is strictly uh, dollars and cents, it, it won't ever make sense. Oh, that's for sure, because, I mean, it is desolate out there. And yet some of the poorer um, citizens we have <clears throat> are on the Indian Reservation. Absolutely. And and the BIA has set aside special funding for broadband deployment on tribal lands. It's just a question of going through the process to getting it and, and making sure there's a need for it and that people want it. Yeah, you're right. A lot of times everybody thinks that's a good idea, but if the people don't want it or won't use it, what good is it? That well, that's a couple of years ago I did a um I went out and met with um a local tribal nation um uh, tribal council in uh right in New York but on the Canadian border. Um and what I discovered uh, and maybe it shouldn't have been a surprise was that there was great wealth and great poverty and not much in the middle. 
and we had access to funding to build out a network, and the tribal council decided that they needed they needed access at the community center where kids go after school, mm-hmm. but to 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 deploy it in a, on a more widespread basis when people don't have computers, um, it wasn't necessary, and they they opted not to do it. Interesting, but you're right. How many are going to have enough have computers of a quality where they can? Do telemedicine or learn do remote learning, if they have a right. computer and, and at all. And, and telemedicine is not is not the answer to all things. No. Uh, I was actually at the dermatologist last week, and he said, "You know, we simply can't do telemedicine. We need to see moles and 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 lesions and other things. We need to see them. We need to feel them. A picture is not is not going to do it. But for many for many people, and um, many medical situations, telehealth works just fine. True." And I think it's a good idea, especially to keep people out of crowded areas. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, very good. Um, let's talk a little bit. We talked a little bit about net neutrality. Why don't we go right into that? That's fine. Um, so um, back in 2015 and 16, under the Obama administration, the FCC uh, enforced and, and created network neutrality rules that, that essentially – gave the FCC the authority to manage Internet service providers. Um, And in that context, um, such providers, and it really applies to the biggest guys, but but, primarily the four big ones, Uh um, the the FCC said you cannot cannot block traffic, you cannot throttle traffic, and you cannot create uh, fast lanes for people whose content essentially you like more than others. Isn't that kind of... Uh, not only discriminatory, but kind of hard to do. Well, I think that I think the big guys know how to do it, and in fact, they're they're doing it already. Oh, okay. Um, but but with the new administration, the net neutrality rules were abandoned, and um, and and what happened next was um, that, in fact, if you watch your own email, you may notice that that it comes in spurts more than it used to, um, and that's essentially because they are throttling. Um, and instead of having to be responsible and, and notifying uh, government agencies about, about how traffic was managed, now they have to disclose that information on their own web pages. And I would say good luck finding it because I have had no luck doing so. Um, and I spent some time last week actually trying to look for those statistics from the big four, uh, Comcast, Charter, AT&T, and Verizon, and I had no luck couldn't find the information anywhere. So the other issue is that, and it, it's, it, it kind of is, unless you're a, a, a telecom nerd like me, it's kind of like the stuff of, of watching paint dry. Uh-huh. But what happened when, when the new administration came into place is that they, it determined that, that the inter, Internet access was an information service, not a telecommunications service. And as an information service, it was subject to light hand regulation. Um, and that has allowed for some bad behavior. And even though, even though the big four all promised they wouldn't do any of these things, in fact, they'd spent a lot of money lobbying to do exactly this. So it was only a matter of time, I think, before it could be assumed that they would do this. Um, AT&T recently got caught um, allowing its subscribers to access HBO Max, which is a product that it owns, um, without um, having such access uh, charged against the data plan that went with the account. So, in fact, oh, that's exactly okay. what it's doing. It's just creating paid prioritization, even though it swore it wouldn't do it. 
And and I was looking at the AT&T uh, annual report um, last week, and in fact, it says they won't do it. But in fact, that's exactly what they are doing. Um, so oh. so the, the the real question is, do you think the internet is a utility? I happen to think that it is. I don't think it was 20 years ago, but I think it is now. I think we all rely on it, uh, perhaps not to the same extent that we rely on we rely upon electricity, um, but it's pretty close. And particularly in COVID times when, when kids are homeschooling mm-hmm. and people are teleworking, mm-hmm. if you don't have Internet access, you are, you are at a marked disadvantage. And as, as we mentioned earlier, it's never going to make sense to provide service in communities where, that, in non-dense communities or non, non-financially solvent communities because the provider has huge expense to install it, mm-hmm. um, and it's never going to recapture its money. So if the only model you're looking at is the financial one, it, it's not a winner. It doesn't make sense financially. And uh, so, so what this does, and this is an old phrase, but it only makes the digital divide bigger, because it's really the Internet haves versus the Internet have-nots. Um, and you know, kids who kids who go to college without basic internet skills, and and it's not just densely populated areas that are that are struggling. It's also um, economically challenged communities. I bet. Um, I've I've run a reading group in a in a, a rough part of of Buffalo uh, for a long time, where the people are densely populated. You know, it's a, it's a it's a dense densely inhabited area, but there's not money, and as a result, who uh, who wants to put in internet? or sufficient Internet to support the community. So the kids who go to this school are at a marked disadvantage, and when they get to high school and they don't have those basic computer skills, they're even further behind. I can imagine they fall far behind quickly without the computer skills that all the rest of the kids have. Uh, absolutely. And then they, then they go to college and don't have, um, don't have these skills, or you're running a small business, and you need access to markets and, and information, and you can't get it because the service isn't available. Um, I, think it's, I think it is a lame argument to suggest that the Internet is not a utility. I absolutely think that it has become one, mm-hmm. and we need to treat it as such. You know, uh, the other day, not too long ago, my Internet at home went out, or at my office went out. And it was like, oh, now what do I do? There's, there's, I rely on the Internet for so much information. And I have, you know, cloud passwords and things like that. And it's like, now I don't even remember telephone numbers because I've got it all in a... That's in a, right. Yeah. And without it, and they kept saying it was going to be out for like four or five hours. Luckily, they their estimates were wrong and they were back in about an hour and a half. So that was good. But it did... it. It was strange because we usually have fair, pretty stable services, so I, you know it was, was something that was fairly unusual. It's a it it's a challenge, and you don't you don't necessarily appreciate how valuable it is or how um, how ubiquitous its use has become until you don't have it. Absolutely, and it's brutal. Oh yeah, it absolutely is brutal. Um, yeah, and some of these under what disadvantaged neighborhoods. Really it's, suffer, it, absolutely, and it, it only makes that divide greater. Um, and there are those who say, "Well, um, we don't we don't need heavy-handed regulation. Regulation stifles innovation." I believe that is just not true. I think 
regulation provides additional hurdles that people need to jump over to, to accomplish goals, but I don't think it stifles innovation. I think it enables it. Um, and so I think these are, these are terrible arguments um, that, that end up keeping people down. Um, if, you, if you have read or have, have um, heard the book Hillbilly Elegy, it's a wonderful book, and it really opened my eyes to exactly the kind of people who need Internet access the most and who don't have it or have limited access to it. And, and you know, one, one other point, which is libraries, mm-hmm. schools and libraries that, have, have, that are normally resources for people who may not have access at home have been certainly curtailed because of the virus. Absolutely. Um, so, so this is a whole other issue and a whole other area where, where access is necessary and it's, and it's been denied, not for anyone's, not, not, not because of anyone's fault, but simply because uh, it's, it, for all sorts of more important reasons, you couldn't go to the library. And these mobile hotspots have been, have been a real savior in that regard. I can imagine. So, I mean, they actually just pull out a, you know, refit a bus and put out a mobile hotspot? I, 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 my understanding is that I know the state of North Carolina has done it. I am imagining the other states have done it. I'm just not aware. Yeah. They probably all have a different way of doing it, but it certainly sounds like it's helpful. Oh, it's essential. It's essential. You know, in, in isolation, connection, is, uh, connection and connectivity is what matters. Yeah, you're right. In all in all way in all stages mm-hmm. of it. Absolutely. It doesn't depending upon how it's classified whether it's a utility or not also depends upon some of the um taxes, fees and surcharges that they pay. Well, it, that used to be more clear-cut than it is now. Um because almost everything is subject to taxes, surcharges and fees. Not not everything, but but almost everything. Uh, local services exempted from from the surcharges, mm-hmm. um, um, and the surcharges themselves. And we'll talk about that a little later. The surcharges are are uh, subject to sales tax. So whatever the surcharge or fee is, it's whatever that amount is plus sales tax, which is a state a state function. Um, so and, and the other thing that's that's happened as uh, as the net neutrality federal rules were abandoned is that the states, uh, certain states, um, created created their own sets of rules mm-hmm. um, to, to try to keep net neutrality in place. And they couldn't, uh, this creates a, a nightmare for anybody who's trying to manage a, a system. Um, but the fact is the state said, we're not, we're not playing this game, and you can't, we're not going to let you do, uh, and, and two of the largest states said to, uh, to their, their big providers, listen, if you want to do business with the state, you have to agree to net neutrality terms. Take it or leave it. Wow. That's um, some incentive. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. There are some who might say that was heavy-handed, and maybe it was. Yep. Uh, but, the, but the problem was bigger. The problem was bigger than that. Boy, you're not kidding. Wow. Looks like we're getting uh, ready to wind down for a break. So we'll take a break to let our sponsors have their say. And we'll be back in a few minutes to continue our talk with Martha. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. 
We hear it and read about it every day in the news. America is heading over a fiscal cliff. Home prices are still receding and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Every day in business, we hear jargon, see writing from so-called experts, and don't know what we should follow and what we should avoid. Now, there's a program to sort everything out. The 2020s Enterprise with Sam Holzman is the program that provides actual best practices, insights, and real-world solutions that help business executives, technology executives, managers, and staff using straightforward talk. Listen live every Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time and 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. You hear about it all the time. Compromises, destructive malware, major breaches. You can't turn on the news without hearing about the latest cyber event. Learn more about cybersecurity, how it has become one of the most significant threats to our national security, and the battle experts undergo every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Task Force 7 Radio with host George Ritas is the voice of cybersecurity around the world. Tune in live every Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Telecom Talk. To reach Pat Pittman or her guest today, call in to 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, send it to ppittman at stonegate-consulting.com. That's p-p-i-t-t-m-o-n at stonegate-consulting.com. Now, back to Telecom Talk. Hi, we're back, and we're talking with Martha Beyer, our telecom lawyer extraordinaire. So with a lot of information regarding issues that are floating around out there that we really should be paying attention to. Um, Martha, one of the questions, or I should say part of the questions I get a lot, which obviously I can't answer, is on the 5G, not only the deployment, but everybody comes along and starts moaning about it affecting my brain. (laughs) Do you have any thoughts on that? So the FCC has taken a very strong position that um, that, um, that 5G does not have negative health consequences. Ah, Now, with that said, with that said, um, I I hate talking on my cell phone and I do not like to keep it next to my ear. Uh, for extended periods of time. I don't think that makes sense for anyone. Um, but I think short-term exposure is, I mean, it, it's, it's radiation. It's just like your electric blanket or anything else. Um, the, the, science, the science guys are saying it's not an issue, and I think they're probably right, but I wouldn't go so far as to promise it. The thing that, the, the, it, the hot issue that's come up recently with 5G is that there have been certain um, conspiracy theorists, primarily in Europe, but also in Australia and in the U.S., Mm-hmm. who have claimed that 5G, 5G is responsible for the spread of the coronavirus. 
Nothing could be further from the truth. This is absolutely not true. It has been debunked in every single way, um, and, and it's, it's simply not the case. 5G is a high-capacity service that offers all sorts of flexibility. It, it does have some challenges, um, but the radiation is not the biggest among them, if, if, if that's an issue at all. The, but the FCC has taken a position that, that it does not have a negative impact on, on health issues. So that's the best I can say. I haven't I haven't done the the research, but that's well, I I'll take my my info. I'll take my marching orders here from from the FCC that has that has the scientists who evaluated this. I agree with you. Um, yeah, I don't. First of all, I couldn't see how radio waves could carry COVID nineteen. Um, that's a no, little, uh, little no. far fetched. I'm thinking, but um, I know some people are always. You know, there's always somebody who's weary of cell phone waves and now, obviously, 5G waves, especially if I'm understanding it right. 5G is the towers are going to be have to be a lot closer together or there's got to be a lot more um, access points. Yes, because there's more capacity. There's much more capacity. Um, So, yes, there will be there will be more. Um, there will be more capability. There will be more capacity, which are and those are different. Um, but I am not in any position to to counter what the FCC has oh, said. Yeah, I wouldn't either. But yeah, so that's that's just as, that's as far as I can go. Can I tell you they're 100 um, percent healthy to have next to your ear for 24 hours? No, I, I I can't say that. But I can tell you I don't keep mine there. But I don't. I'm not afraid to use it, and I don't believe in any way that 5G deployment has anything to do with the spread of the virus. That's just, that has been debunked over and over and over again. Thank you. Um, Could some of that telehealth COVID-19 funding be used for 5G deployment? Um, It is possible. Again, off the top of my head, I don't know. Mm -hmm. Um, 5G deployment, though, has two components, right? The first component is the antennas that sit on towers or other places, but the second element is the handset or, or what the end user uses to, to be 5G. So when you see these ads on TV that say we're bringing 5G to, to your community, well, that may be true. But if you don't have a 5G-compatible device, it really doesn't matter. So it's, it, there are two ends of, two ends of, of, um, of the 5G connectivity. So it's got to be uh, uh, compliant mm-hmm. on, the, on the tower end but also at the end user end. So you'd have to have a so everybody'd have to upgrade their cell phone to take five G. Correct. Correct. Wow. Correct. And if you live in a community where five G is not available, you're spending a lot of money to get five G compatibility that's not useful to you, or that may not be useful to you, or only useful occasionally when you go into an area that's got five G. Correct. Wow, uh, that is a boon for the equipment manufacturers. Um, so a couple of years ago, I, I went to Mobile World Congress in Barcelona, mm-hmm. um, and it's a, it's it's the biggest trade show I've ever seen. Um, I think it makes it makes um, it makes the consumer electronics show sort of look like a, a garage sale um, wow. in terms of just in terms of size. But there were so many entities selling handsets. Um, now, many of them are Asian and mm-hmm. I'm from Asian companies, and it, and it's a worldwide event. It's not an American event, um, but yeah, there's a there's there's where there's a market, there will be somebody there to fill it. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Got that. Well, great. Um, 
let's talk a little bit about some of the new 911 um, okay. areas that are coming under more and more scrutiny. Uh, I understand so, we have a new law. Well, we do. It became effective in February. It is called Carrie's Law. It is named after Carrie Hunt, who was tragically murdered in 2013 in front of her young children. Um, and her nine-year-old daughter knew to call 911 when when the estranged father came into the room and started hurting the mother. Mm-hmm. Um, but the fact is, the little girl who who had been taught to dial 911 did not realize that she needed to dial a nine to get an outside line. Well, how many children would recognize you that? You wouldn't know this. So effective um, in February of this year, um, anyone who is installing um, or manufacturing a new multi-line telephone system must be sure that it is compliant with Carrie's law, which means that you, ca- you cannot be required to dial an extra digit to reach 911. Originally, when this came up in, in, uh, shortly after her death, uh, fax machines were in more wide use, mm-hmm. were used more frequently. And the concern was that people would have essentially what's known as fat finger disease and dial nine and then to get an outside line and then to begin to make a long distance call for a fax mm-hmm. and hit one twice, thus calling for the police or the fire or whoever to be dispatched. Right. Um, People are using fax a whole lot less, although I am looking at my fax machine right now, and I do use it. Um, Not often, but I do. Mm -hmm. Um, But the feeling was that that, um, the the blocking of access to 911 with any digit, whether it was 9 or an 8 or a 2, it didn't matter, um, that that was not worth the risk. So so effective February, February 16th, I believe, of this year, New systems, newly manufactured systems, and newly installed systems, multi-line telephone systems, must be Carrie's Law compliant. Now, that's, that's the first part. The second part is, what if you don't have a new system? Well, that's what I'm going to say. You know, not everybody has a, a system manufactured in the last couple of years. Correct. So do they need to comply with Carrie's Law? Well, yes and no. No, because the, the strict language of the law says new and newly installed. But there are other areas of law that govern employee, guest, contractor safety. And one of those is OSHA. Mm-hmm. Oh, really? I didn't um, realize OSHA was in this. OSHA is, well, indirectly. And that is because an employer has a responsibility to, and I'm going to read the language because I, I pulled it up just for this purpose. Um, under the, under the OSHA law, employers have a responsibility to provide a safe workplace, and that means providing a workplace that is free from serious recognized hazards and comply with standards, rules, and regulations in, in, issued under the OSHA Act, into, well, under, under the OSH Act. Mm-hmm. So, okay, so that doesn't specifically mention Carrie's law, but I don't think it would take much of an attorney, let alone a good attorney, to make the argument that denying access to 911 constituted an unsafe work environment. So there have been no cases that have been tried yet, of which I'm aware. Um, But the fact is, you have, as an employer, you have an obligation to provide a safe workplace. And by not providing this, and and my understanding is also that the... um, to, to make an existing system compatible with Carey's law is not a major deal in most cases. So it's, it's better to simply have done it um, so that you are compliant. And the other, one of the other components of Carey's law is that there has to be simultaneous notification 
ah. to third parties. So if you're if you're a big business, uh, you can you can tell the security desk that someone's called nine one one, and you must. But what you cannot do anymore is have direct nine one one calls to the security desk and then have them sent to the outside. Uh, first responder has four minutes to get to somebody who's in cardiac distress, and anything that delays that access mm-hmm. is a problem. Um, so putting an extra step or an extra person in the middle is not is not a workable alternative. Um, so that's the first one. The second law is called Ray Bombs Act, and that does not become effective until January of, of next year. Um, and Ray Bombs Act still remains somewhat vague um, mm-hmm. in terms of identifying what is required or what is meant by location identification, location information. So, okay. So there are some vendors who say it means that every phone has to be identified in a database, um, which is a, an expensive alternative, although it's certainly, it's certainly a reasonable one, except that if you identify cubes, for example, mm-hmm. as cube 2-32, a first responder doesn't know what that means, right? So you're paying True. all this money to get, to get specific location information that isn't helpful, um, where uh, another, another side of the vendor equation will say, you know what, it, within this certain amount of square footage, we know that it's in the northeast corner of the building on the second floor. And that, that may be sufficient. So there's some clarification that still needs to be, uh, still needs to be worked out with Ray Bombs Act, but they are, they are two different things. Um, but Kerry's Law is in effect today. Ray Bombs Act comes and becomes effective in the beginning of the year. Wow. Uh, that, you know, because that could be difficult for people to identify where they are. I mean, even a lot of cubes don't have numbers on them. Well, right. And, a, and a, um, a, an employer, um, a, an employer or someone who hosts, and of course, it's, it's the, the whole issue of 911 access becomes even more challenging when you look at, at people who are teleworking, because they may have a phone um, whose number is tied to an office location when they're working at home. Mm-hmm. That's um, true. And often, often if um, entities are purchasing um, IP phone uh, network capabilities, there will be a separate 911 disclaimer sheet that says, I understand that if I have to use this phone to call 911, the location information may not be accurate. Then what good would it be to use it to dial 911? Well, it's, it, I, think, I think the, the issue is if you need to call 911 from a mobile device or from a um, and a device that has a different, I, different location information than, than where the person physically is, the person who's making the call needs to understand that this is an issue. You know, we have, there have been a number of stories where people called 911 from IP-based phone systems, and they couldn't be found until it was too late. And one of them, I think, was in the D.C. area. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I mean, they, the, these, these things do happen. And so if you were putting, if you were deploying a, an IP phone system, it is critical that employees understand and, and uh, understand that, that location information may not be, may not be accurate. So I, I always advise clients, if they're going to do this, and it's not a bad thing to do, they just need to be aware, that the employee on uh, an orientation day when he or she is getting all sorts of paperwork to sign, mm-hmm. that there be a separate standalone sheet that just deals with 911. You can't you can't lump it in with with all the other things they're signing about where the cafeteria is and you know what break time is and, and that sort of stuff. 
um, it, that sort of information, it, it really has to be very clear so that nobody can say, gee, I didn't know. That could be deadly, so to speak. Absolutely. Four minutes. You've got four minutes. First responder has four minutes. Wow. And that, that's just not very much time. No, it's not. Um, yeah, and especially if they end up at the wrong location for 911. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, and, and, and it's, happened, it's happened way too many times. Um, so, anyway, so those are that's the that's that's the the, the hot stuff there. I had um, I had heard that um, some of the cell phone companies were trying to find a way to more closely identify where the nine one one call came from if yes. it was from a cell phone. They they are they are and they're also um, supposed to be uh, recognizing the, the Z. So you've got the X and Y axis. Mm-hmm. But also the z-axis. What floor are we on? Um, but it's not 100% reliable, um, and it's it's more reliable than text to 911, um, which does not work in many places. Mm-hmm. Uh, texting to 911 is not a, is not a good plan. Uh, but a, a mobile device to 911, it, it is not fair to assume that the first responder will know the location, because because they may not. Well, wow. certainly sounds like. You know, the best thing to do is try to figure out some way to get a location information. But I imagine it's difficult, especially when people are walking around. Well, right. Right. It is. It is. Um, you know, at, at, for an, from an enterprise perspective, mm-hmm. it is not a bad idea if, if it's done with notice in advance to test 911 capabilities. But don't just do it. You need to coordinate with the first responders ahead of time so that they don't deploy the fire trucks and the ambulance and the police um, when in fact all you're doing is a test. Well, actually, I thought you was. I was under the impression you were supposed to call them and tell them you'll be testing. Yes, yes, that's what, that's exactly okay. what I mean. Don't just do it. Oh, I thought I'd do a test just now. No. No, not a good idea. I'd like to schedule a test next week. Tell me what I need to do, and and we'll. I just I just want to see how we're going to respond, and and that's that's how it works. Wow. That puts a lot of pressure, especially on the first responders, but also on the people setting up new telephone systems. It it, it does it does, but it um, and it also I think puts a fair amount of responsibility on the people who are pr- procuring the system from inside. That is the the consultant or the telecom department needs to be aware of these issues uh, because there is liability and 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 it's it, and it really can be a matter of life and death. Yeah, who would want to be responsible for that just because you cut corners and didn't do it right? Correct. Yeah. Well, looks like we're about time for another break. So we're going to go off, and we'll be back shortly. Okay. I'll be here. Okay. Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. Tune in to the soul of enterprise, business in the knowledge economy with co-hosts Ron Baker and Ed Klass. Ron and Ed will show you how to recognize that wealth is created by intellectual capital. It's all in the possibilities that we can create and that are created for us. 
These possibilities are destined to be discovered by human imagination and through the service of others, creating a brighter future for all of us. The Soul of Enterprise is heard live every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel and simulcast at the same time on the Voice America Variety Channel. It's time to take charge of your own career path. But how do you get started? First, tune in to The Career Confidant with Marie Zimanoff. Each show will feature national business leaders, tips and insight from Marie and her guests, career management tools, and a weekly career smart tip. She'll help you move forward, earn that promotion, get hired into the career you want, and brand yourself. The Career Confidant is broadcast live every Monday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Tired of the Get Rich Quick or How to Flip Home shows? Are you ready to step up your game and invest in commercial real estate? James Nelson, a top New York City broker, will show you step-by-step how to acquire, operate, and profit. You'll also hear from real estate legends on how they made their fortunes and industry experts on strategies for success. Tune into Real Estate Investing, live from New York, on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Business. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You are listening to Telecom Talk. To reach Pat Pittman or her guest today, call in to 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, send it to P. Pittman at Stonegate-Consulting.com. That's P. P-I-T-T-M-O-N at Stonegate-Consulting.com. Now, back to Telecom Talk. Hi, this is Pat Pittman, and we're talking here with Martha Beyer, a telecom lawyer, who's been filling us in on some of the very interesting and some of the scary parts of the law as it pertains to telecom. Um, One of the issues I think a lot of people, especially now that when you look back and think about what's happening and the Kerry's Law information and the Raybomb Act and all the other different things, and you think about buying a new system or re-upping the one you have, what kind of contracts or what should they be looking for in a contract? What are some of the gotchas that the poor people uh, don't know are happening? So there, there are a couple of items. Most of them are related to service as opposed to equipment. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so the, the ones that I, I will highlight are all service-related. Okay. Um, I will say right up front, uh, contrary to what you'd think, these things are never really about price. Um, and I know I can hear people falling over. Um, it's not really about price. It's about terms. Um, because the fact is, often buried in the terms on page 47 of uh, an obscure website is a statement that says something like, we reserve the right to change these terms at any time. Your continued use constitutes acceptance of those terms. Well, th- this is a problem because, first of all, you don't know what the terms are. Secondly, you don't know where they are. And third, you don't know when they've changed. So, when someone tells you that they're going to be selling you a service that's going to cost, and I'm picking nice round numbers, yes, um, $100 a month, in fact, starting on July 1st, that service, assuming that it is not strictly local 
communication service is going to be subject to a 26.5% universal service assessment. And on top of that will be the telecommunications relay, service, relay service charge, local number portability charge, and the North American numbering plan charge, all of which will then be added together, and sales tax will be calculated. That 26.5%, so, that's that's, and that's just the universal service charge. That's, that's not huge, the other stuff. So. so if you're, and that's the highest it's ever been. If why? You think, what? Why? Be- probably because there's greater demand for the funds that universal service raises, which are for rural health care facilities, schools and libraries, uh, providing service in high cost, high cost areas. And there's one other that is escaping me at the moment. But, but universal service fund supports all of these worthy endeavors. Rural healthcare education. Um, that there, there are four of them. I'm missing one. That's okay. Um, but, uh, but in any case, it's it's going up because there's more demand. Uh, there's greater need. And as as we talked about earlier, you know, the people who live in in wealthier communities, this is not an issue for them. But it is very definitely an issue um, in either sparsely populated or uh, poorer communities where they simply can't afford access to regular uh, to to plain old commercial internet service, um, it, it's it's not an option. It's not a financial option. So, um, and I think I kind of got off tra- topic, but this, okay. this USF charge thing is a, is a very big deal to me because it, it only drives home even further that, that the price that, that an account exec is quoting is really not, it may be related to the final charge, but it isn't the final charge. So, I have no problem with someone who tells me that service that I'm buying is going to cost $100 a month. But I have a huge problem when they tell me it's going to cost $100 a month and it costs 150 True. And, that's, and, and often providers, often providers are, um, and I'm not blaming account teams because they may not know this. They should, but they may not. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but the fact is a, co- a consumer needs to know that if you focus on price, from my perspective, you know, I'm a lawyer, I get it, um, you're focusing on the wrong thing. It's really got to be on the terms, and somebody has to read them carefully, even though the provider only gave you a single, seat, a single sheet to sign. Somewhere on that sheet, it says, for a definition of the terms, go to www. Mm-hmm. And you can search around there for a couple hours before you find anything that you need. Yet, those, you're bound by those terms because that's the agreement that you signed. Interesting. Um, one of the... One of the other issues, um, contractual issues, has to do with force majeure, mm-hmm. which is sort of an outside force. Okay. Um, and it, under most force majeure provisions, if through no fault of the provider or the customer the service can't be provided, the provider is often relieved of the duty to provide. That is, if you can't, if you can't, if you go to the grocery store and they don't have rice, you don't pay for rice. Right. right. You, didn't, you didn't buy it. But often the, these contracts are not written that way. So the provider is excused from providing the service, but the customer is still on the hook for paying. So they don't um, have to provide, but you have to pay? Correct. Wow. Correct. And that's in, that's in more of these contracts than you can imagine. Um, and I had, this, I had this experience with a client of mine who um, was in, in lower Manhattan, and Hurricane Sandy happened, and they were out of service for six months, mm-hmm. and the bills kept coming. Now, we didn't pay them, but according to the contract, we were still on the hook. They, were, they didn't have to provide the service, but we still had to pay. And if we go back to the grocery store example, 
again, you, they don't have rice. You don't pay for rice. You don't pay for what you're not getting. Mm-hmm. That's not how these work. Is there is there um, anything you can do about that? Well, I, I think I think the first thing is you don't you don't um, you don't start screaming at the account exec about it because chances are the account exec doesn't know. Probably, um, yeah. And and you know, in all fairness, it's the, the, what you want to do is get this solved. Um, and I've been working with a with a very good consultant who's in the in the Seattle area, mm-hmm. um, and we we met we talked to a provider last week, and we said, look, we understand force majeure, but we can't be paying for a service that we don't we're not getting. And the service provider said, okay, that's fine. We will, if you're not getting the service, you don't pay for the service. That's that seems fair to us. And I was very happy to 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 work with them because they 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 did the right thing. But I just think most people see this thing and say, "Well, yeah, okay, force majeure. We don't have to provide it if 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 there's a if there's an event." And and that's not to say that force majeure is is you can invoke it when you stub your toe. I mean, it's uh-huh. there's a blizzard, yeah. there's a there's a hurricane, there's something that pre- there's a virus, there's something that prevents you from delivering the service. You shouldn't be obligated to pay for it. Um, so um, those are those are kind of the. The key ones that I'm seeing at the moment, um, those are those are places where I I zero in in a big hurry. I don't blame you. Um, I had I heard one time that there was I think it was up in the Northeast, but don't quote me on that. And they had bought um, cell service, and of course when they got their bill, they there was extra fees and surcharges on there. And they fought it, saying, you told me this was an inclusive price, and now here are extra fees and surcharges. And they fought that with the cell company, and I believe they won. Well, the, the Colorado Attorney General has just, um, has just gone after CenturyLink for, um, for doing somewhat of a bait-and-switch. So people are getting a little tougher about this. Mm-hmm. Um, but but it, it, what what likely what happens more often than not is that the account exec says one thing and the contract says something else, and it's the contract that governs. Um, so that's and that, that's an ongoing challenge. Well, yeah, for sure. Um, what about the various tariffs and things like that? How do they play into it? Well, tariffs are, are largely gone. They're not completely gone, but they are largely gone. Mm-hmm. And tariffs most often affect intrastate service only. Okay. Um, so um, as the Telecommunications Act of 1996 largely got rid of most of them. Um, so it, it, where a tariff governs, it governs. Um, but there's no, there's no short answer to that either. Uh, but tariffs are mostly intrastate, and services uh, uh, surcharges like like universal service don't apply to uh, to local service. So um, just like the the uh, telecommunications excise tax uh, battles of of a decade ago that were uh-huh. led by the legendary Hank Levine and and his group at Levine Blazak Block and Boothby, they're the ones who brought down that charge, um, and that was that was a big deal. But yeah. these, are, these are expensive court battles. Um, and and good for them for taking them on and prevailing. Yeah, I can remember that because um, I got quite a few consulting jobs getting rid of or calculating mm-hmm. what mm-hmm. their credit would be because it was so 
prorated and the percentage changed and how many months was it in service and it got really complicated. But if you figured it out, it was a nice chunk of change a lot of people got back. Yep, yep, absolutely. Absolutely. They, um, Steve Rosen um, ended up um, doing a, a lot of the work on that. He's a great lawyer, and uh, um, he and Hank and that firm did a, did a great service to everyone. Yeah, because it had been in, what, since like 1812 or something ridiculous yeah, like been, that? I think it was not the Spanish-American War. The, <laughs> One of them. But, but, but possibly that long. Yeah, and it just kept going, which some of these, I mean, um, yeah. taxes, fees, and, and surcharges not, sound like they're just going to keep going. Well, I, I mean, universal, they're all, they, they all support worthy goals. Of course. They all support worthy goals. Um, telecommunications Relay Service, that line item supports, um, that supports service to the hearing impaired. The things that bug me are the made-up charges that sound like they're real taxes and aren't, mm-hmm. like property tax allocation or property tax surcharge. Any, any relationship that that has to actual property taxes paid is serendipitous. Um, <laughs> but they did, it, they did it to make up for money that they may have given away on, on the cost line. So that's why you, never, you always want to focus on cost or on terms, not on, not on price. Um, and, and this stems from the, from the old MCI days, when when service was purchased on a per minute basis, that is, you paid X price per minute, mm-hmm. and the, the and I'm picking these numbers out of the air, but the big providers were saying long distance was going to be four or five cents a minute, and MCI came in and said we're going to we're going to offer it for one, and the other guys couldn't figure out how they were doing it, um, but they had to match it, except that they also had to balance their books, and so they created these these items that sounded like taxes to recapture the revenue that they'd given away in the per-minute charge. Agreed. And we all know that MCI was doing some strange things there. Yes, they were doing some creative accounting. Agreed. Um, I know you when you're talking about things that they made up, um, I've had arguments with a lot of the reps about, they'll just say, well, this is a federal charge, and I'm like, you might say it's federal, but it isn't really. It's not, Correct. It does not. You have to figure out where it goes once you pay it. You know, Correct. It, is it actually remitted to the government or does it go into the carrier's or the provider's pocket? Right. Again, tell me, tell me what it's going to cost and I'll pay it. But don't tell me it's going to cost X and bill me for Y. That's mm-hmm. not fair to me. Or just add it. All of a sudden, one day you open up your bill and there it is. Right. Wow. Martha, it has exactly. been a pleasure. Um, we're getting well, close to you. the end, and but this has been so informative. Thank you so much for inviting me. Oh, um, you're by all means welcome. We might, um, as things go on, might invite you back for some. Well, that's, there's I so much to I talk. Can. There's so much to talk about in this arena. Yeah. And people yeah. are not aware of that. No, um, that's why I have a job. True. Yes, I can imagine. I bet you're really busy these days with a lot of these things. I keep hearing that um, there's just lawyers waiting in, waiting in with bated breath to jump on anybody who comes down with COVID at a, at a business location. It's going to be very tough to prove because of the incubation period. How yeah. do you know where you got it? 
I mean, yes, this is an issue. Um, and, you know, I'm involved with a tennis club that that's getting ready to reopen, and that's something that we're saying to our members. Like, look, you know, we're not re- – you choose to come here. That's on you. But the fact is, first of all, you can't write – you can't sign away your rights. And secondly, proving proving where someone got it is, is going It'd to be, be difficult. extremely difficult. Yeah, that's what I thought. Well, Martha, thank you so much. We've come to the you end of the show. You are most welcome. Come to the end of the show, and I hate to see it closed because you've got such great information. Well, thank you for the invitation again. It's been a pleasure. Oh, you're welcome. You have a great day, Martha. Thanks. You too. Thanks. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for making Telecom Talk a part of your week. Be sure to join host Pat Pittman for another episode next Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We'll connect again next week.